Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of HealthEd. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Hi, my name is Professor Andrew Sindoni. I'm a cardiologist at Concord Hospital and at Riot Hospital. I'm going to be talking to you about stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. If we don't, then who will? These are my disclosures. So there are some difficulties in atrial fibrillation management. The problem is that there is low detection and also poor adherence to guidelines. There is also a lack of coordinated integrated care and a focus on patient preferences. Also, many atrial fibrillation patients have comorbidities. So that means that there's a higher burden of uh, odds of not commencing treatment and also uh, patients who may be at high risk of stroke or maybe at high risk of bleeding and the risk ratio really becomes more difficult to manage. There's also an underestimation of the risk of stroke and also an overestimation of the risk of bleeding. So what we're going to do is focus that, look at the data and see what's going on because if we don't start the patients on anticoagulation, who will? Now, as far as improving atrial fibrillation management is concerned, where do general practitioners fit in? This is important because the general practitioner is the gatekeeper. They're often the patients who detect it or suspect it and either treat it or refer on. But I think it's really the job of the general practitioner to be there the first person. Because if I see someone with atrial fibrillation, I'd be really happy if the general practitioner had started that patient atrial fibrillation management for their stroke prevention with an anticoagulant. Because then I can say, oh, okay, we've got the atrial fibrillation protected. They're not going to have a stroke. We're going to be mostly protected with anticoagulation. And then we can think about uh, investigating, about managing the rate, and thinking about whether they need any procedures. So the general practitioner is important in lifestyle and risk factor management and in anticoagulation. Rate control and rhythm control is a shared care between the general practitioner and the cardiologist. We also have to assess and optimize risk factors like obesity, sleep apnea, uh, thinking about exercise, hypertension management, managing the type 2 diabetes, uh, reducing alcohol, managing stress and smoking. So what is the impact of atrial fibrillation? It's the most common sustained cardiac arrhythmia in Australia and worldwide, and the development of atrial fibrillation is multifactorial. Uh, but unfortunately, as you can see on the right, that if you compare people with and without atrial fibrillation, there is a significant increase in the chance of dying. dying. So if you look at men versus women with atrial fibrillation, um, uh, men are at higher risk of dying, but also men with atrial fibrillation, without atrial fibrillation, there's a big difference. So if we can prevent atrial fibrillation with those lifestyle measures that we've talked about and also manage their anticoagulation, their risk of dying will come down dramatically. The problem is with this is that if you compare strokes in patients with atrial fibrillation versus those without, the ones who have atrial fibrillation have much worse outcomes. They're more likely to be severely disabled and also more likely to die. That's early on and also longer term follow-up. So what are the cornerstones of atrial fibrillation management? This is the slide, but I'm going to say to you, anticoagulation, anticoagulation, anticoagulation. That's the most important thing, because if a patient has a stroke, then it's a disaster. As I said to you just a minute ago, if they have a stroke related to atrial fibrillation, they're more likely to be severely and permanently disabled and more likely to die. So anticoagulate, think about risk factor management for prevention, because I've said how bad atrial fibrillation is, and that means weight, treating obstructive sleep apnea and blood pressure, managing their alcohol and smoking, uh, and getting them to exercise and control their diabetes adequately. 
Then the rhythm control and the rate control. Rhythm control is with um, uh, either electrical ablation, radio frequency ablation, or uh, cryoablation, and medications for rate control, and maybe avionate ablation if you can't manage things with medications. There's this approach called the ABC approach, called AF Better Care. There's uh, step one, two, and three. We're gonna go through that pretty carefully, but um, as I said earlier, those lifestyle management measures, looking at uh, trying to prevent atrial fibrillation and reduce the, um, the burden of the atrial fibrillation is important. Uh, Professor Prash Sanders in Adelaide did a big study where they looked at people with atrial fibrillation ablation and they gave them standard care, versus lifestyle management, and they showed that lifestyle management led to a 50% reduction in the risk of recurrence of atrial fibrillation at two years. It wasn't rocket science, it was weight loss, um, regular exercise, um, in this case was supervised in the gym, uh, perfect blood pressure management, perfect blood glucose management, treating obstructive sleep apnea, no cigarettes, no alcohol, limiting caffeine intake. Uh, those sorts of measures make a huge difference as far as recurrence of atrial fibrillation is concerned and also in de novo uh, presentations. So look at, let's look at this ABC. What's the A? Avoid stroke. So identifying low-risk patients and offering stroke prevention to patients with a CHADS-VAS score of uh, one or more. And uh, once you look at anticoagulation, deciding on whether to give them a vitamin K antagonist or a NOAC. But I would say a NOAC is preferred and so does the European Society of Cardiology Guidelines. So I say warfarin for patients that you don't like or for patients who have a metallic cardiac valve or moderate or more mitral stenosis. Now, what's the C? That's the cardiovascular and other morbidities. And we've said it again, but we'll say it again and again and again. Manage the blood pressure, heart failure, really important, valvular heart disease, myocardial ischemia with revascularization or medications to reduce ischemic burden, treating that sleep apnea with a CPAP mask, obesity reduction, regular exercise, reducing alcohol and stimulants, also looking at their psychological morbidity. And ask the patient, put the patient at the center, make them um, the person who ultimately makes the decisions in shared care with their doctors. So if you look at that ABC approach, it's really interesting. You can lead to a 58% reduction in all-cause death, a 63% reduction in cardiovascular death, a 45% reduction in ischemic stroke, and a 31% reduction in major bleeding. And so it really behoves us as doctors to try and do this, and the general practitioner is the gatekeeper. So in Australia, we've done some research. Um, this data is uh, from a few years ago now, and it showed that stroke caused an estimated uh, almost uh, 12,000 deaths in 2012, and there are about 420,000 people living with the effects of stroke in Australia. So stroke is a bad thing. And two thirds of these uh, sustained a disability that impaired their ability to maintain activities of daily living, but the uh, incidence and the prevalence of stroke is gonna rise, so by 2032, that's only in 10 years from now, it's predicted there'll be 709,000 Australians living with stroke. It's about 2.4% of the population. So um, it's, it's really growing. And non-valvular atrial fibrillation uh, accounts for the majority of those. So um, you can see that uh, the incidence of stroke is gonna go up and, uh, and these strokes are gonna be bigger if they're associated with atrial fibrillation. So in 2019, for example, 27% uh, of patients with stroke were admitted to hospital with atrial fibrillation, and 6% were identified uh, during the stroke admission. So they didn't know that atrial fibrillation until they had their stroke. And only 74% of patients uh, with atrial fibrillation were discharged on anticoagulation after their ischemic stroke. So that secondary prevention is so important. If you've had a stroke, you're at high risk of having another one. And um, if the people with non-valvular atrial fibrillation make up about 90% of those um, uh, with atrial fibrillation, 
and the risk of stroke is increased by fivefold. So if you look at all strokes, and as far as the cause is concerned, um, cardioembolic from the atrial fibrillation is by far the most common. And as people get older, um, numerically and proportionally, that increases dramatically. So uh, treating that cardioembolic stroke with anticoagulation is, is really important in the people you can see over the age of 85 and also um, uh, 75 to 84. That's the, the, the biggest group. So you're going to say, oh, yeah, older people. We're going to talk a little bit in just a moment about older people. And you'll see that the benefits um, still far outweigh any potential risks as people get older. If you look here in Australia, the other problem is that there are a significant proportion of people with undiagnosed atrial fibrillation. So it's an estimated uh, uh, 91,000 people in Australia uh, have atrial fibrillation, which is undiagnosed. So do the simple things. Take the pulse. Ask the patients, do you ever feel palpitations? Um, do an ECG. If you're not sure, maybe a halter monitor as a screening tool, although it's not perfect. But those sorts of things can help you increase your risk of um, picking up your rate of detection of atrial fibrillation, which is really important. Now, I mentioned to you just a moment ago the European Society of Cardiology Guidelines for Atrial Fibrillation. These are the ones from 2016. I just wanted to break it up into two groups, the what we call mechanical um, uh, valves and the people with hemodynamically significant mitral stenosis, so moderate or severe. Those ones need anticoagulation with warfarin because you want an INR of 2.5 to 3.5. But for non-valvular atrial fibrillation, everyone else, it's actually preferred, you can see down the bottom there, preferred to have a, um, a NOAC, a non-vitamin K oral anticoagulant. And you look at the chads VAR score, if it's one or more, we really should be strongly considering um, a NOAC. And only if they have a contraindication to anticoagulation would we think about a left atrial appendage occlusion device. This is a pool analysis looking at the, um, the non-valvular atrial fibrillation and non-valvular anticoagulants compared to warfarin. And you can see there that the benefit is, is there across the board. If you look at stroke or systemic embolism, about a 9% reduction. Ischemic stroke, uh, there's no real differences, but the, the hemorrhages are the big one, especially intracranial hemorrhage, at least a 17% reduction there. And major bleeding, a significant reduction with the NOACs compared to warfarin. And death, again, a significant reduction, 13% reduction in death uh, with the NOACs compared to warfarin. So that's why NOACs are preferred. Reductions in death, reductions in bleeding, and also reductions in stroke or systemic embolism. Now, what about after an ischemic stroke? So if we look um, on the right-hand side of the patients with atrial fibrillation, we just look at the, the, the majority. These are the people who don't have a stent. Um, uh, to their coronary arteries, within the first day, maybe you might want to withhold the, the, um, the DOAC or NOAC, but uh, day one to three, we should start pretty soon, um, depending on the size of the stroke. If it's a small stroke or a TIA, really, really early, but certainly after three weeks, everyone should be on uh, a DOAC, but it's important because, if you, as I said earlier, if it's not us, then who's going to do this? The patients might go home on no anticoagulation, and then they'll fall through the cracks, they won't get um, their anticoagulation and secondary prevention, and they'll have another stroke, which is often going to be devastating. So what are the benefits of oral anticoagulants? As I said before, and I'll say it again, they're preferred to, to warfarin now, to the vitamin K antagonists, and the exceptions are only mechanical valves or moderate severe mitral stenosis. So any other valvular lesion, um, still preferred to use uh, a NOAC over warfarin, and tissue valves still preferred to use a NOAC over warfarin. And the efficacy of oral anticoagulation is important because if you look at the patients who are on warfarin, they only spend, at best, in clinical trials, about 65 to 70% of the time in the therapeutic range, and often a lot less. And that means they're, they're not protected 
or they're over anticoagulated and at high risk of bleeding. So the oral anticoagulation really reduces the risk of stroke by about 60% and all-cause mortality by about 26%. So anticoagulation is key. The overall appropriateness of the first uh, prescribed dose of your DOEC is important because unfortunately there is a lot of underdosing. People say, oh, you know, I don't want them to bleed, so I'll just start them in a small dose. Unfortunately, if you do that, they're not going to get adequate protection, and so they're going to have a stroke. So if you're going to do it, do it properly. You can see here across the board, apixaban seems to be the one that is most frequently um, underdosed, uh, whereas uh, rivaroxaban and dabigatran, there is much less frequent underdosing. So I'd you know, be really warning you to look at the, you know, the guidance. And so, for example, in patients over 75 uh, with dabigatran, you use the lower dose, and with both dabigatran and uh, rivaroxaban, if their, uh, if their creatinine clearance is less than 50, should be using the lower dose. Whereas well, with a Pixaban, they have to have two out of three with a creatinine greater than 133, uh, age over 80, and weight less than 60 kilograms. A bit trickier, but remember, don't underdose if, unless it's, it's appropriate, because otherwise you're not giving patients adequate protection. If you look at the safety of uh, NOx versus warfarin by age, and this is something I was alluded to, alluding to just a moment ago, you'll see here, if you look at stroke or systemic embolism, it favours uh, the NOx compared to warfarin in patients over 75, definitely, and under 75 also. So the, the benefit is actually a bit more prominent here in this meta-analysis from Ruff uh, with uh, the people over the age of 75. So certainly, um, you should not be thinking, oh, they're older, I'll give them warfarin instead. That's actually putting them at higher risk. And if you look at major bleeding, again, uh, it favours the, uh, the NOACs in the younger people, and there is a trend towards favouring it in the older people as well. So both protection from stroke and protection from bleeding, the NOAC is the way to go. What about in obesity? People say, oh, the pharmacokinetics is unpredictable, and so in obese patients, um, we should be thinking about warfarin because you can measure the levels. There are some challenges with vitamin K antagonists as well, again, because they spend less time in the therapeutic range because they have a very large volume of distribution, and there's poor guidance as far as what to do in the people, you know, the really obese people with a BMI more than 40, or weight more than 120 kilograms. But really, the updated data now suggests that um, uh, apixaban and rivaroxaban are quite useful, uh, reasonable to use um, for, for uh, in, in VTE, in uh, venous thromboembolism, and there's more data with rivaroxaban than apixaban, and it's also safe in atrial fibrillation. Recent data really help, helps us there, and I'll show you. This is the data. If we um, look at this slide carefully, you can see that in people with a body mass index less than 30, which is um, either normal weight or overweight, compared to the really obese, the, the BMI more than 50, that the risk of ischemic stroke is protected um, with the, the NOx compared to warfarin. And across the, across the board there, the hazard ratio is, is really in favour. Not necessarily significant because the numbers get pretty small, but it's certainly the hazard ratio shows strong trends towards uh, protection with the NOx compared to warfarin. And you can see on the left-hand side there, as we go up in our body mass index, everything seems to be in favour of the, uh, of the NOx, although significance is not always there. But here's an interesting analysis um, from uh, 2021. If you look at, um, say, the left-hand side ischemic stroke as you're increasing in, in body mass index, that the, there is a greater risk with ischemic stroke with warfarin uh, compared to the DOACs across all of those body mass indexes. And similarly with bleeding, warfarin is at high risk across all the weights. Uh, all-cause mortality, warfarin actually is associated with a higher risk of all-cause mortality, and hemorrhagic stroke. So again, the DOACs are beneficial across all of the weight ranges for bleeding and for stroke. 
What about falls? People say, oh, the people, yeah, they're at higher risk of falls or people who have frailty, um, uh, issues with their balance. And you've, you've all heard this many times before, that a person taking warfarin must fall about 295 times in one year for warfarin not to be optimal therapy. And that applies even more for the DOEX because the DOEX are at actually less risk of causing intracranial bleeding. So 295 falls. So um, falls are definitely not a contraindication to anticoagulation. And here's a case study showing that um, in people at risk of falls, if you look at their, um, if you categorize them according to high risk of fall or no risk of fall, um, and it's still recommended if your CHADS, CHADS uh, 2, in this case, score was uh, 0 to 1, aspirin or nothing, and 2 to 6 anticoagulation. And that's based on this analysis. The people at high risk of falls is the dark line, low risk of falls is the dotted line, no difference. So um, the risk of falling has um, no effect on, on bleeding in people on anticoagulation. Okay, so we've talked about the obese, we've talked about the elderly, we've talked about people at risk of falling. What about patients with renal impairment? That's important because a lot of patients um, that we put on anticoagulation do have renal impairment. There's an interesting phenomenon where the vitamin K antagonists, warfarin, uh, increase vessel calcification. And the reason is that um, it seems to have an effect on uncarboxylated uh, matrix GLA proteins. And that leads to proliferation and migration of cells and vessel calcification. Whereas the, um, the NOACs don't have that effect. And so, um, in fact, they have uh, uh, signaling via the uh, protein active activated receptors, uh, and that inhibition leads to reduced proliferation and migration of cells, reduced oxidative stress, and uh, reduced remodeling, and actually protects against vessel calcification. So through these possible mechanisms, it appears that warfarin actually leads to increased plaque, increased calcification via that reduced activity um, of the vitamin K-dependent protein matrix gamma carboxylic acids and red blood cell casts. Whereas the uh, anticoagulants, the non-vitamin non K anticoagulants like uh, rivaroxaban seem to have some protective effects. And so uh, that reduced inflammation may be really helpful in patients with uh, renal dysfunction. And now we know that you can use rivaroxaban all the way down to a uh, creatinine clearance of 15. Now, let's look at the uh, efficacy and safety of the patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation and moderate renal impairment in the Rocket AF trial. And here they broke them up according to creatinine clearance from um, greater than 50 and 30 to 49. Uh, and you can see there that uh, there's, there seems to be no real heterogeneity as far as that renal function is concerned. And uh, the, the benefits of rivaroxaban seems to be really helpful in the stroke with systemic embolism, and there's no real difference in the bleeding. So uh, there's greater protection and no increased risk. So as far as I'm concerned, again, in patients with renal dysfunction, um, you know, the DOEX seem to be very, very helpful in, in that subgroup of patients. But it's an important subgroup. So uh, this is a, an interesting analysis where they looked the other way around. They looked at patients um, on warfarin versus um, versus NOACs in patients on anticoagulation, and they looked at w their effect on renal dysfunction and calcification. And what they found, the patients with a non-valid atrial fibrillation who were new to anticoagulation and who started taking oral anticoagulant between 2010 and 2016 were followed up, and um, they looked at patients with uh, valvular atrial fibrillation, uh, kidney failure, or other contraindications, they were excluded. And that for renal outcomes, they examined um, whether there was a greater than 30% decline in the estimated GFR or a doubling in serum creatinine, acute kidney injury, or kidney failure. And this is really interesting. What they actually found was that rivaroxaban compared to warfarin 
led to significant benefits as far as a, a greater than 30% decline in estimated GFR, doubling of creatinine, acute kidney injury, and a trend towards reduction in kidney failure, which is very interesting. So it seems to be, I hate to use the word, nephroprotective. Now, this is a retrospective analysis, but it's, it's really an interesting way of looking at things. The other thing is that if you look at the diabetic patients, again, the trends were all in favour of um, uh, less deterioration in kidney function via um, those endpoints with rivaroxaban versus warfarin. So the question you're going to say to me is, when should I use warfarin? And I'd say, really. Maybe, or certainly in patients with um, hemodynamically significant moderate or severe mitral stenosis, or in patients with a mechanical valve. But otherwise, uh, the, the NOACs are really uh, the drugs of choice for anticoagulation. And as I said earlier, aortic stenosis, aortic regurgitation, still go with the NOAC. Uh, mitral regurgitation, tricuspid regurgitation, tricuspid stenosis, pulmonary regurgitation or stenosis, a prosthetic valve with a tissue valve, still fine to use uh, a NOAC, even a transaortic um, uh, valve replacement using, uh, using a TAVI, where they go through the femoral artery rather than having to do open surgery, or a mitral clip, a NOAC is still the drug of choice ahead of warfarin. So really we should be knowing our, our NOACs very well. The advantages are fixed dosing, uh, there's fewer drug interactions, there's uh, fewer food interactions compared to warfarin, particularly alcohol is, is quite safe in patients who are taking the DOACs. You don't have to do the blood tests. It, they work pretty quick, quickly, usually within two, minutes, two hours, and they, they wear off faster than warfarin does as well, usually 24 to 48 hours, whereas you know, three to five days sometimes with warfarin. A shorter half-life means that there's potential um, of less bleeding if someone has, has bleeding. And also there's a, a significantly lower risk of bleeding uh, into the brain and a reduction in stroke. Disadvantages, um, you know, maybe in some circumstances there may not be a reversal agent and uh, you know, there should be caution with extremes of body weight, but I've shown you the data now that uh, we, we really can be much, much more confident in extremes of body weight and the bleeding risk I think is, is less than with warfarin as I've shown you with all the data. And in some, some of the major medications do need to be used twice daily, whereas warfarin is once daily, but rivaroxaban is once daily. So really we're changing the paradigm to starting a NOAC unless there's a really good reason not to, not the other way around. So let me summarise what I've just told you now. There is a rising burden of atrial fibrillation as a consequence of increasing rates of obesity, hypertension, diabetes, sleep apnea, and sedentary lifestyle. And in all circumstances, the net clinical benefit is in favour of anticoagulation for stroke prevention in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. Now, if you look at the CHADS-VAR score, uh, greater than or equal to two, even if the risk of bleeding is high, uh, the NOACs are the preferred agent and anticoagulation is the preferred strategy. Reducing the dose of NOACs should only, only be used in patients who meet the dose reduction criteria from the clinical trials because inappropriate low dosing means you're not protecting your patients. So, and it really doesn't reduce the risk of bleeding. All it does is uh, compromises their stroke protection. In patients with renal dysfunction, NOACs are safer and more effective than warfarin, and they may reduce the decline in kidney function as well as reducing vessel calcification. Um, age should not be a barrier to anticoagulation if the stroke risk justifies it, in, and risk of falling should not be a barrier, and now we know that um, weight should not be a barrier either. We don't have to adjust uh, for, for body weight because, as I showed you earlier, um, the benefits are across all of the body mass indices. And NOACs really should be used for anticoagulation in patients with atrial fibrillation. They are the drugs of choice. And whether there's um, uh, urinal dysfunction all the way down to that EGFR, uh, sorry, a creatinine clearance of uh, less than 15, that's the only time we would stop creatinine clearance less than 15, or if there's some uncommon drug interaction. So 
in atrial fibrillation with stroke prevention, now we really have the data. We have the data that if their chance of our score is one or more, they should be treated. We should not be missing them. We should be looking for them, detecting them because the risk is high. And the preferred agent is a NOAC because the risks are really reduced dramatically and the risk of bleeding is also improved compared to warfarin. This is the way we should be managing stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.